Well, good morning, Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose. Um, It is my joy and privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. And so, let's see. As Danny mentioned earlier, the title of the sermon is The Priorities of a Good Servant of Christ Jesus. And to begin, let's see here. See if I can get my slides up. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. Here we go. To begin, um, some of you might remember this, but back in 1993, there was a TV commercial that came out featuring Hall of Fame basketball player Charles Barkley. And in it, he says this, I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Just do it. As a young boy, I recall hearing and being struck by these profound and controversial words from the mouth of an 11-time NBA All-Star. Promoted by Nike, the world's largest athletic apparel maker, this message sparked national media attention at the time. And if you followed his basketball career or afterwards, you would know that Sir Charles is no stranger to controversy. In one infamous incident, he was suspended and fined by the NBA when he tried to spit at a heckler seated courtside and ended up hitting an eight-year-old girl. Ironically, around the same time, a popular brand of sports drink aired a commercial with the slogan, Be Like Mike, featuring Michael Jordan, who is considered by many to be the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time. The commercial is a classic. If you want to be, you want to be, you want to be like Mike, like Mike, or want to be like Mike. Any of you remember that one? Or am I the only one? Hopefully, yeah. If you want to be like Mike, what do you have to do? Drink Gatorade, right? That was the commercial at that time. So, should kids grow up wanting to be like Mike or Kobe or LeBron? To flip the question around, should professional athletes be role models? As we think about role models to follow, many of us, including the children who are with us this morning, would point to our parents, right? All of us have parents or have had parents at one point who raised us with certain values. Some of us are parents ourselves. Others of us hope to be in the future. But I would venture to guess that within the context of the family, most, if not all of us, would agree that parents should live as positive examples to their own kids. But how about the Christian? The child of God who has been adopted into his family, whose desire and aim in life is to be a good and faithful servant of Christ. Well, for the believer, there's no question or debate. God's word is absolutely clear that all Christians are called to be role models. Not because we appear on TV, not because we get paid millions of dollars or can dunk a basketball, 
As disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be examples to all people, and especially to those who belong to the household of God. The testimony of Scripture is that Christ died not only to pay the penalty for our sins, to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but also to transform us through the power of his word that we might increasingly bear his image and reflect his glory for all to see. That is his eternal plan, his divine purpose, and his unwavering commitment in our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds his followers that we are the light of the world, just as he is the light with the capital L of the world in John chapter 8, and that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. The question is, do we recognize and appreciate what he is doing in and through our lives? And especially in these type times that we are living in today. Well, this morning we are going to touch upon this high calling that God has given to servants of Christ to live exemplary and purposeful lives in the sight of others as he mightily works in us. This goes hand in hand with the high calling we have been given to commit ourselves to the ministry of his word in the local church. And we will see that both are to be priorities for every believer, but especially for Timothy and for those who have been called to lead in the church. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as we look at verses 11 through 16, we are going to consider first the prescriptions, Second, the purpose. And third, the promise that are laid out in his word. The prescriptions, the purpose, and the promise. And my hope is that we would not merely walk away with a deep conviction from his word, but that individually and together as a church, we would commit ourselves to pursuing these same priorities. The priorities of a good servant of Christ. Jesus. Well, let's read the text, which should hopefully be familiar to us from our study of it in Lagos a couple months ago. And for context, I'll be reading beginning from verse 6, but we will be focusing our time this morning on verses 11 through 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our set hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of God. Well, would you pray with me one more time as we come before his word? Lord Jesus, as we come to the exposition of your word, would you help us, Lord, to recognize and remember its authority? Lord, these are your revealed words to us. These are not my words. Lord, would you help us to recognize its sufficiency for our life and for godliness? Lord, it's necessity for our salvation and for our spiritual growth. And would you help us to remember its power in conforming our lives to your word. Lord, help us not merely to understand it, Lord, but would you help us to apply it to our own hearts? Would you help us, Lord, to receive it with thankfulness, with humility, with faith, Lord, always ready to do your will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with the prescriptions. What should immediately stand out to us as we read verses 11 through 16 is that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy ten commands. You can feel the urgency of his authoritative message. As Timothy's mentor and father in the faith, the Apostle Paul doesn't just share with him a 10-step program for growing the church or his top 10 list of lessons learned in ministry over the years, although I'm sure there's plenty of things he could have shared with young Timothy. Instead, he exercises his, his apostolic authority in prescribing 10 divinely inspired commands that Timothy is to follow in order to lead a life and a ministry of faithfulness to Christ. Looking at these ten imperatives, we observe that eight are positive commands. Teach, in verse 11. Command, in verse 11. Set an example, verse 12. B, devote yourself, 13. Practice, verse 15. Immerse, again, in verse 15. Keep a close watch, verse 16, and persist, again, in verse 16. But we also find that there are two negative commands. Let no one despise, verse 12a, and do not neglect, verse 14. And let's just briefly consider the reason and need for both. 
In the positive commands, we see a need for encouragement and exhortation in Timothy's life as well as ours. Why is that? Well, like many of us, Timothy is susceptible to the discouragement and distraction, the day-to-day struggles of life in a fallen world, and ministry in a church made up of sinners. If you recall, the Apostle Paul had departed Ephesus and had left Timothy in charge to put the church into order and to deal with false teachers who had crept into the church, twisted men who sought to lead people away from the truth. Apostasy and rejection of the word of God would become an increasing reality in the church as Apostle Paul predicted in verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In the face of mounting resistance, external pressure to conform, and internal pressure and temptation to compromise, what would Timothy need? Well, he needs encouragement. An exhortation. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, press on, don't give up, but stay true to your gospel calling. Remain committed to these unchanging priorities. Devote yourself wholly to Christ and his word. But we also see in these two negative commands the need for young Timothy to be warned, perhaps even corrected of the dangers and pitfalls of life and ministry in the local church. Specifically in verse 12, we see the temptation to fear man. In light of those in the church who look down upon, even despise him for his youth, Timothy might be tempted to compromise his biblical priorities or to take a more pragmatic approach. Perhaps, as a young, inexperienced pastor, the thought crossed his mind to set up a meeting with all of the older, more influential members of the church to see what he can do to gain their support, earn their respect, and win their approval. Timothy, don't let the opinions of others control you, Paul says. Rather, be faithful and committed to gospel living and gospel proclamation. Not only the temptation to fear man, but we also see in verse 14 the temptation to neglect his ministerial gift. The temptation to neglect his ministerial gift. Perhaps the intense spiritual nature of ministering in the church in Ephesus and the suffering associated with it was starting to take a toll on Timothy. He was slipping into complacency, anxiety, hopelessness, laziness, or carelessness. Forgetting that the ministry has been given is not only a privilege, but also a stewardship that carries a heavy responsibility. And if you've been serving in ministry for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about. These real-life temptations and struggles are as prevalent in ministry today as they were back then. But these things are incompatible with a good servant of Christ Jesus. And Timothy is to avoid them at all cost. Instead, Timothy is called to pursue excellence 
in how he lives his life and ministers the word of God. So that in the end, he might be found a good and faithful servant of Christ. So from that perspective, in these Ten Commands, the Apostle Paul gives clear instructions to Timothy on what he is to do and how he is to live as a servant of Christ Jesus. What he is to do, that is his primary duty as Christ's appointed minister, and how he is to live, his public example before others. These are to be his priorities and way of life as a minister of the gospel, to impart upon his hearers both his teaching and his life, to hold out before them the perfect word of God and the undeniable, observable effect it has had on his life. So let's first look more closely at what Timothy is called to do. Starting with verse 11, we read, Command and teach these things. Now, what are these things that Timothy is to teach and command? Well, if we look back at the previous verses, the Apostle Paul had just written about the value of godliness, the hard work that is required to attain it, and the hope with which Timothy is to strive for it. These things that Timothy is called to actively pursue in his own life, he is to turn around and teach and command others to do the same. Notice by these two imperatives, command and teach, that is more than just instruction in the sound doctrine of the Word of God. It's calling for a response. Specifically, obedience. And for Timothy and all who desire to be good servants of Christ, this is not a new commission. In fact, in Matthew 28:18 through 20, Christ commissions his disciples with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do what? What does Christ say? Teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. That is the calling not only of Timothy, but of every good servant of Christ Jesus. Whether you are an elder, a deacon, a discipleship leader, to teach and command from the word of God, with the authority that ultimately comes from Christ. Like this morning, if I were to simply teach the word of God without calling you to obey Christ through faith and repentance, I have failed in my responsibility as his servant. At the same time, if you were to walk out from hearing his word taught, nod your head in agreement, feel encouraged or convicted, but there is no greater love or obedience to Christ, you have not rightly responded to the truth that you have heard. Biblical truth, rightly taught and received, should always have as its aim obedience to Christ and his word 
out of submission to his supreme authority and lordship over our lives. So the very things Timothy is called to do and be, he is to command and teach others with the authority of Christ. Well, what else is Timothy to do as a good servant of Christ Jesus? Go down a couple verses to verse 13. Verse 13. We read, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Once again, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy to prioritize the ministry of the Word. If you haven't figured out by now, it's a recurring theme in our passage in the book of 1 Timothy and in the rest of the pastoral epistles. Here, Paul specifically highlights the public reading of Scripture as well as exhortation and teaching. What is the public reading? Well, the early church adopted the pattern of the synagogue where Scripture would first be read and then explained by the rabbi. If you recall in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, and as was his custom, he would be given the Old Testament scroll. And he would stand and read, for instance, from the book of Isaiah or one of the other prophets. Then he would explain the text that he had just read to his listeners. After Christ's resurrection, this model carried over into the early church as they met on the Lord's Day rather than on the Sabbath to hear the Word of God read, then explained. In light of silly, irreverent myths, endless genealogies which promote speculations, lies and teachings of demons that threaten the church, Timothy was to hold fast and to hold out the Word of life devoting himself to the public reading and exposition of the Word of God. And this public reading of Scripture set the stage for exhortation and teaching in the Word. Exhortation. It is simply calling people to apply the Scriptures to their lives, to respond to the Word that had just been read and explained. Now, exhortation can come in various forms, According to the need of the moment, encouragement for the faint-hearted, comfort for the suffering, rebuke for the unruly, counsel for the struggling, warning for the unrepentant. But at the end of the day, the truth is to be impressed upon people's hearts so that they might respond to it through faith and obedience. And then finally, teaching. Didaskalia in the Greek. This is a reference to the systematic instruction in the Word of God. It's a word that is repeated eight times in the book of 1 Timothy, 15 times in the pastoral epistles, emphasizing its importance in the life and ministry of the local church. Today, if you were to go to a Christian bookstore or go online to Amazon, you'd find that there are no shortage of systematic theology textbooks. They are helpful resources. But that is not to replace the systematic teaching of doctrine in the local church. So we see that the ministry that Timothy has been called to centered on the Word of God, its public reading and exposition, 
its application in the lives of the hearers, and its systematic instruction. And as the pastor in Ephesus, Timothy was to commit himself to these activities. They were to be a priority in his ministry, and they ought to be a priority in our ministry here at Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose. Well, let's move on. What else does the Apostle Paul exhort Timothy to do in order to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? Go to the next verse, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here, the Apostle Paul calls Timothy to faithful stewardship. He is to put to proper use the gift he has received from God that has been publicly affirmed by godly men and godly leaders in the local church. And what exactly was this gift that Timothy had been entrusted with? Well, from the immediate context that we've just looked at, it is the ministry of the Word. And with this gift comes a heavy, heavy responsibility to use it for the service and edification of the church. All of us know that in life and ministry, there are and there will always be competing priorities. Sometimes it's a choice between something that's good and something that's bad. For example, choosing between meditating on Scripture versus indulging in sin. But more often than not, it's not about what is good versus bad, but what is good versus better versus best. Should I serve in this ministry or that? Should I spend time ministering to this person or that person? We each have been given 24 hours a day and limited resources. And we each have received a gift according to God's varied grace. There are many good things that are worth pursuing. However, for Timothy, none would be as important as the ministry of the word. And he was to view it that way. He was not to grow weary in it, complacent with it, or distracted from it. He was not to compromise or neglect it for the sake of lesser things, especially in the face of growing apostasy in the church. At the end of the day, he was to remember that this ministry given by Christ is a high, high calling, an undeserved gift and privilege. And so Timothy is to be found faithful with it as a good steward of Christ. From the verses we just looked at, we clearly see what Timothy is called to do, to pursue as a priority the ministry of the bird. But we also see, secondly, how he is to live as a good servant of Christ Jesus. Go back to verse 12 with me. We read, Let no one despise you for your youth. We mentioned earlier that in this command, the Apostle Paul anticipates one of the challenges that Timothy would face in the church in Ephesus. Back then in the Greek culture, not dissimilar to the Asian culture that many of us grew up in, one's age was a determining factor in how others perceived and received you. Essentially, if you were older, you could tell others, people, what to do. If you were younger, 
You had your work cut out for you. Being at a disadvantage as a young pastor in his 30s, how was Timothy to overcome this barrier, knowing that the ministry of the gospel was at stake? In our secular society, especially here in Silicon Valley, we might boast about our resume, our personal achievements, our educational background, where we went to college, what professional degree we have behind our name, or our work experience, maybe at highly coveted companies such as Facebook or Apple or Google. In a church, we might lean on our seminary training or ministry experience to compensate and validate our qualification for leadership. But the Apostle Paul doesn't counsel him with any of those options. Instead, he says, let your life speak. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Through your godliness, don't give anyone an excuse or reason to discredit, disrespect, even despise you. Make sure that in every aspect of your life and ministry, it is above reproach to all who observe. Why is this so? Because the biblical standard for leadership in the church is nothing more and nothing less than maturity in Christ. The biblical standard for leadership in the church is nothing more and nothing less than maturity in Christ. It is to be the fruit of God's work in our lives as his gospel transforms us from the inside out. We saw this previously in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when we looked at the character qualifications of the elders and the deacons in the church. Also in chapter 2, godliness was to characterize and mark the men in the church who pray lifting holy hands, as well as the women in the church who presented themselves with modesty and good works and godly submission. In character, word, and deed, the gospel was to be made visible in Timothy's life. This is to be true of every disciple and, Christ, disciple and servant of Christ. But as the one whom God has called to lead the church, Timothy was to be a living example of what he teaches. Brothers and sisters, it should come as no surprise to us that we live in a world full of negative examples. Many who would insist, do as I say, but not as I do. We think of our political leaders, including the mayor of Austin, who urged his people not to travel to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 while he attended a fam family gathering in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Or we think of our own state governor, who dined at a five-star Michelin restaurant with lobbyists after issuing a statewide shelter-in-place mandate. And let me remind us that our primary calling as a church is to be praying for their salvation, not to be petitioning for their recall. But the good servant of Christ is to be a living example of the truth he proclaims. There is to be a conduct that accords with the sound doctrine he upholds. There is to be a clear connection and consistency between what he says and what he does. And it is to be observable by all who watch. Unlike the political leaders of today, 
and the hypocritical false teachers of his day, the Apostle Paul actually practiced what he preached. As a good servant of Christ, Paul modeled these priorities, these same priorities in his own life and ministry. A life transformed by the Word of God and a ministry centered on the Word of God. Recall his personal testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Right, He writes there, starting in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul viewed his life and his ministry as an example to other believers. Not an example of his own excellence, but of the abounding mercy, patience, and grace of his Savior. Not an example of his own work and righteousness, but of the power of the gospel that had radically transformed his life to be a good servant of Christ. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, with both utmost confidence and humility, the Apostle Paul can write to the church in Corinth, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be reminded of my ways in Christ. He can also exhort the saints in Philippi, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. To the Thessalonian believers, he writes, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, for you have been given in ourselves an example to imitate. And here in verse 12, to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So how does the Apostle Paul close this section on the good servant of Christ Jesus? If we go down to verse 16, he summarizes the priorities that we've just looked at. Go with me there. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Pay careful attention to not only what you teach, but also how you live. This is to be Timothy's way of life. And for Timothy and all who aspire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, it is to be an all-consuming, lifelong commitment. We see this in the previous verse, verse 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. And here in verse 16, persist in this. There's to be diligence, discipline, 
perseverance involved. Christ is not looking for cruise control Christians, but rather servant leaders who are working, willing to work hard, sacrifice, and give themselves fully to these priorities. Not just when things are going well, but in every season of life and ministry. Timothy is called to commit everything he has and hold nothing back because as we'll soon see, the stakes are enormously high. There will be blood, sweat, and tears shed, but it's well worth it for the eternal promise that it holds. So having looked at the prescriptions, specifically what Timothy is to do and how he is to live as a good servant of Christ, what is the priority of your life and ministry? Servant leaders of Lighthouse Bible Church, is it our ambition to pursue a life and ministry centered on the Word of God, whether you help lead praise on Sunday mornings, serve as an assistant in your discipleship group, help oversee the church finances, or coordinate the setup of chairs and tables. Brothers and sisters, do we prioritize the Word of God in our own life? Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, but Ted, this doesn't apply to me. God has clearly not gifted me to preach or teach, let alone be a pastor. Well, it may be true that not many of us are called to full-time pastoral ministry like Pastor Mark. But listen up. None of us are off the hook. Because if Pastor Mark and the elders are tasked to prioritize the public ministry of the Word, to teach command and exhort you all in it, it must necessarily mean that every member of this church is to prioritize it as well in how we receive, desire, and submit to the Word of God. You guys follow? If Christ expected Timothy to esteem the Word in how he ministers it, Christ expects the congregation to have a high view of his word and how they receive and are ministered by it. In the end, all of us are called to prioritize the ministry of the word. So then, do we long for more of God's word in our lives as it is exposited from the pulpit every Sunday, taught in Cornerstone, studied in Logos, in order that we might increasingly be conformed to it. This takes us to our second point, which is the purpose. The purpose. And we find this in the second half of verse 15, where the Apostle Paul links the prescriptions he just gave to a statement of purpose, beginning with the words, so that. Look with me again at verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. The NASB translates it this way, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident 
to all. Note the purpose and the reason that Timothy is called to devote himself to these priorities. It's so that his progressive life and ministry would be on public, would be put on public display. And at first glance, it may seem like the Apostle Paul is exhorting Timothy to put the spotlight on himself so that others would applaud his virtuous life. But a proper understanding of this verse shows that the focus is to be on himself for the sake of others, his audience. The Apostle Paul is not exhorting Timothy to put on a facade of holiness like the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' days who were known and condemned for seeking the approval of men. He's talking about putting on display the genuine, irrefutable work of God's word in his own personal life and public ministry. The reason Timothy is to pursue excellence in what he does and how he lives is so that the gospel would be made visible to all who observe his life and ministry. Specifically, the Apostle Paul refers to the sanctifying work of the gospel. It's not his justification that is on display, but his what? His sanctification. We see that in the word progress, propoke in the Greek, which is a dynamic word not a static one. It speaks not to the perfection of Timothy's life and ministry, but to the direction of his life and ministry, specifically his spiritual growth and advancement in the gospel. And it's to be seen and evident, not just to some, but to all those before whom Timothy lives. All. There's to be no question no doubt or disagreement about what is driving Timothy's life and ministry. It is to testify to the abounding grace of God and the transforming power of his word. So it begs a couple questions of each of us. First, is progress in the gospel evident in your life and ministry today? Is progress in the gospel evident in your life and ministry today? And by the way, we're not to be the judge of that ourselves, are we? According to this verse, it's to be observed and affirmed by others around us. So we need to be asking that of one another, starting with our own spouse and children, our roommates whom we live with, but also members of our discipleship group, our ministry leaders, our elders and deacons. And you're not asking whether you're perfect like Jesus but whether they see that you are growing and advancing in Christ-likeness. And regardless of how long you've been walking with Christ, whether you are a brand new believer or you've been a Christian for a long time, whether you are a member or a deacon of this church, progress is always and continually to be seen in you. So, is gospel growth visible in your life and in your ministry today? Is there growth in Christian character, conduct, and speech, in holiness, humility, love, faith, obedience, repentance? And if I can gently exhort you from his word, you know, before you head to bed tonight, humbly ask your roommate, 
or your spouse or fiancé this question. And for your own benefit, ask them to be specific. Ask them to be honest. Do you see progress in the gospel in my life today? And if the answer you get is no, perhaps some of us need to consider 2 Corinthians 13.5 and examine our faith. Whether Christ is truly Lord of our entire life, have we left everything to follow Him? Second question. Are you living with the purpose that your sanctification and growth in the gospel matters not just to yourself, but to others around you? And we'll hopefully see this more clearly as we come to our final point, but are you approaching life with a gospel perspective? That your sanctification impacts and benefits all those who observe your life, especially other members of the household of God. This leads to our third and final point for this morning, which is the promise. First, the prescriptions, then the purpose, and now the promise. And for that, go with me once more to verse 16. We read there, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you might save both yourself and your hearers. Is that what it says? No, right? For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. There's a certain promise that's attached to our perseverance. And I don't know about you, but that to me is as incredible a promise as any other in Scripture. It is one of His precious and very great promises granted to us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation and that of our hearers are the expected result and the promised outcome of faithfully pursuing the priorities given to us in His Word. Just let that thought sink in for a moment. Our personal lives and public ministry will have an eternal impact for the kingdom. And if that doesn't motivate us as believers, our salvation and that of our hearers, there's something wrong with us. For that is God's explicit and expressed desire for us and for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue that we would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we absolutely and unequivocally affirm that God alone saves. As we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is no other gods but one. He is the ultimate source of salvation and the Savior of all people. And there is salvation in no one but Christ Jesus the one mediator between God and men, who gave himself as a ransom for all. But in his divine sovereignty, God uses human agents as his instrument, especially those who are good servants of Christ, to accomplish this purpose. When he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that 
For by so doing, you will save yourself. The Apostle Paul is not suggesting that it is somehow possible for us to produce or bring about our own salvation through our own effort, wisdom, or persistence. That is a false interpretation. Contrary to the gospel and to the sound doctrine of his word. If that were really the case, Christ would have died in vain. And all that we celebrated last weekend was a hoax. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 clearly states that we have been saved by grace through faith and that this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. The correct way then to understand verse 16 is that as we persevere in the faith, the testimony of our life and ministry will affirm and authenticate the reality of our salvation. In other words, perseverance in the faith is a mark of genuine salvation. And our final salvation demands perseverance. But it is not only that we will save ourselves, but that for by so doing, we will also save our hearers. Now, what does that mean? Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. We're not to dispute what's clear in the word of God. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that our personal life and public ministry serve as a platform for the gospel to be seen and proclaimed to those around us. And God promises to use us including the sanctification that comes through trials, suffering, and conflict he brings into our life and ministry as his chosen instrument to draw sinners to himself through the gospel. And if I can exhort you one more time, you know, I know that some of you are going through right now some difficult trials and circumstances in your life, whether it's with your own health, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your marriage, at your workplace, or in a relationship. Perhaps some days it feels like the testing never ends or that you can't endure any longer. For others of us, that season of trial is just around the corner. But when God promises to do something in and through our lives, we can take Him at His word. Our sanctification is never in vain, but serves His greater purpose. It is always for our good, for our salvation. It is always for the salvation of others and is ultimately for His glory. So let us hope and trust in Him. But regarding this particular promise found in verse 16, I would suggest to you that The opposite is also true. Brothers and sisters, when we don't pursue these priorities in our lives and ministry, when we neglect one or the other, when God's word and our holiness is missing in our lives, we compromise our own salvation and that of others. This does not mean that we can somehow lose our salvation and that of others, but rather we suffer the loss of the genuineness of our salvation. 
and the means of salvation in others. It doesn't mean that God cannot save without our cooperation, as if he were dependent on us in any way. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We are predestined for salvation according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 God is completely sovereign over salvation. But while he does not need us, he chooses to use our lives and our teaching to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And in that sense, we can say that the salvation of our soul and the salvation of the people in our life, in our ministry, rest on our godliness and our teaching. There is a lot at stake and a lot riding on how we live and what we teach. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. So we are to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching because this pattern of life and ministry holds incredible promise for us and for those to whom we minister. We started this message with a quote from Sir Charles. I want to leave you with a much better one from Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane. He says this, The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Before I read this quote a few years ago, if you had asked me what I thought was the greatest need of the congregation, I probably would have given a very different answer. Of course, at the end of the day, we all need Christ. We all need his salvation. We desperately need his word. There is no replacement for those things. But in light of what we have seen from his word this morning, our personal life of holiness does carry weight. And it does fulfill a need in others. This is true of all those who serve in leadership, including myself. We need to practice what we preach and to elevate our commitment to personal holiness and to the Word of God above all other expectations. But it's not exclusive or limited to elders, deacons, and ministry leaders. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what is the greatest need of the people around you? Of your Christian roommates, other members of this church, the people in your discipleship groups? Parents, what is the greatest need of your spouse and your children? Is it a six-figure salary or a single-family home in the Silicon Valley? Is it family devotions or family vacations? Now, these things are not necessarily bad, but do we pursue and prioritize them over the value of His Word and the value of our godliness? Earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-10, through 10, a passage that Peter preached on a while back, we saw that our godliness has value not only in the present life, but also in the life to come. From our passage this morning, we see our godliness has value not only for ourselves, but also for others. There's a much greater purpose to our lives than we typically think. Our life and ministry will either influence others toward Christ or we will steer them away from Christ. There's no neutral ground. The notion that our walk, our character, our speech, 
Our sexual purity, our sanctification, our repentance, our obedience are a private and personal matter. It's completely foreign to Christ and contrary to his word and his purpose for the church. We are saved and adopted into the household of God, progressively transformed into his likeness through his word, so that our lives can be a visible testimony of his gospel work in us. And as we advance in the faith, serve as examples for others to see, we help one another follow Jesus. At the end of the day, that's what Christian discipleship is all about. Teaching and modeling Christ for others to follow. And if Christ is truly our Savior and Lord, the one whom we have left everything to follow, we should all strive to say with the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The question is, is our life worth imitating? When we begin to see that our godliness and sanctification is not just about ourselves, but that it has a redemptive purpose in God's divine plan for the church, it changes our whole outlook on life and ministry, doesn't it? Ephesians 3.20 says that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. So, will we, by faith, obey his prescriptions and trust in his promise for salvation, understanding his greater purpose for our lives and for our ministry? Well, from our passage this morning, taken from 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16, we've looked at the prescriptions, the purpose and the promise given to Timothy and to the one whose aim is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. But as we conclude, there's actually a fourth P that I want to mention because it ties everything that we've talked about together and leads to our final application. And that final P is power. And this is critical for us to consider. Where do we find the power to lead such a life and ministry of faithful service to Christ? Where do we find the power to lead such a life and ministry of faithful service to Christ? Well, what do we see in our text? What's not explicitly stated here is actually implied and assumed in all six verses as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. We've alluded to this throughout our message, and the theme carries through the whole epistle of 1 Timothy. But in order to fulfill this high calling, to pursue the priorities of a good servant of Christ Jesus, with the purpose and promise that comes from his word, the gospel needs to be abounding in our lives. The gospel needs to be abounding in our lives. Not any one of us on our own is adequate for the task. Even the best of us on our best days, with our best effort, falls short. The power does not reside in us, but in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Our union with Christ through the gospel is what enables us to uphold the truth in the face of opposition to live with godliness before others, to persevere in the faith, and to lead 
others to Christ. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5.15 So here's the final application and exhortation for us this morning. In our Christian life and ministry, our roots in Christ and in His Word need to grow deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because that is His provision and the source of power for us to be His faithful servants. And as I mature in the faith, I I realize how much more, not less, I need the gospel in my life to put away sin, to grow as his child, and to fulfill my ministry and calling as a servant of Christ. The depth of our roots in Christ and in his word will determine the depth of our lives and ministry. It's something I desperately need and would humbly ask of you guys to pray for me in my own life. And it is my prayer for you as well in the life and ministry that God has called each of you to. If you're an unbeliever today, this gospel of Jesus Christ is your only hope for salvation. Out of love for you, Christ left his heavenly throne 2,000 years ago to enter our darkness. He lived the perfect and sinless life that none of us could. He suffered and died for your sins so that you would not have to. And he rose again to life three days later, as we just celebrated last week, to display his power over sin and death. But if you do not repent, turn to him by faith and submit your life to his lordship, there is a divine reckoning that everyone will have to face one day. And you will receive what you deserve, which is perfect and divine and righteous judgment for sin. So will you respond by faith and repentance today. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word to us this morning. To those whom you have saved and called to be your servants. Lord, we desire more than anything else to hear from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Would you make this true of me? Would you make this true of every member and every leader of this church? Would you make us your good servants? It's in your name we pray.